Chad Scott was the DEA's golden boy, but his right-hand men were a little too interested in the product. You're a drug cop who occasionally uses drugs. Right. How do you work that out in your mind? It'll enter your mind a couple times. It didn't really with the X or the Molly. Now, method would enter my mind. You would. When they're caught dealing drugs, they flip on Chad and confess everything to the FBI. But what the feds find is a lot more complicated than drug dealing. Listen to Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, guys. Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there. Welcome back to the final episode of the Jimmy Chagra story. Been a crazy, wild ride, as you know, if you've been following along. And if you don't, go back and start with episode number one. little recap, as usual, Jimmy Chagra was a son of Lebanese immigrants who settled in El Paso after the last Mexican Revolution. His brothers Lee and Joe were both successful Texas criminal attorneys specializing in defending drug smugglers, and Jimmy Chagra was a kingpin drug smuggler down in uh, the El Paso area. Now, now Joe wasn't such a great lawyer. Joe kind of went along with Lee. Lee was the he was the the like Oscar Goodman kind of lawyer. He could he could work miracles, and he was a real uh, high flying, brash personality. And you know, but now he's dead. By this last segment, he's dead. Think back, Jimmy Chagra had made connections with Colombian marijuana growers after uh, Mexican weed got kind of out of popularity, and Colombian was better, higher quality weed. I guess would get you higher and less. I don't know, uh, but they start exporting shiploads of high-grade Colombian weed and landing them on the East Coast, as we heard from our, our friend uh, Kermit Swidell um, from the Folly Cove deal. After losing a couple of shiploads during those times, and he lost a couple of planes and a pilot, he threw in with another smuggler, and, and this partnership went south. New partner starts setting up Jimmy, informing on him, getting him ready to go to buy his way out. You know, in the drug business, people are always trying to buy their way out of something. And and it's a, it's a dirty business, folks, so don't get into it because somebody's going to rat you out. November 1978, someone, unidentified person, ambushes U.S. Attorney James Kerr as he drove away from his El Paso home. James Kerr had been on kind of a crusade to put together a conspiracy charging Jimmy and his brother Lee under the narcotic kingpin laws that had recently been passed. Lee Kerr also, or James Kerr, also was in Judge John Wood Wood's court. You know, you know, you see where we're going here. November 1978, somebody fired several rounds at James Kerr as he left his El Paso home. Uh, a month later, a couple of off-duty soldiers robbed Lee Chagra at his law office and murdered him. Jimmy Chagra is distraught after the murder of his brother, and he always suspected that the feds may have orchestrated that murder. There was a lot of different rumors about it at the time, but when it came down to it, it was a couple of off-duty soldiers that uh, the guy who owned the building where Lee Chagra had his law office and rented from knew there was always a lot of money in there, and, and he set up that robbery is what he did. Jimmy Shiger made some vague threats and, and named John, Judge John Wood as maybe the guy who was behind the murder of his brother. Or maybe this is in retaliation for the ambush on James Kerr. I don't know. It was a lot of stuff going on in El Paso in, in 1978 and 79. 
March of 79, three months after Lee Chakra's murder, El Paso cops arrest the suspects. One confesses, and shortly thereafter, everybody knows this is just a run-of-the-mill robbery. So, a couple of soldiers from nearby Fort Bliss. Jimmy has other worries anyhow. The feds have indicted him and many others in his network, and he's arrested during this time. And this case is going to be heard by Maximum John, John Wood, the judge, and prosecuted by James Kerr. James Curry, during this time, he has armed guards all the time because there's a lot of rumors floating around. John Wood had some for a while, and then he just blew them off. He said, no, I don't want that anymore. Uh, I know James Kerr, like the rest of his life, he kind of lived in, in a little bit of fear of this uh, uh, after this ambush attempt. The government, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office, made sure that Jimmy's case would end up in ju uh, Judge Wood's court. Because they indicted him in Midland, Texas, you know, he was he had this, you know, international drug smuggling thing. And, and you know, they might have indicted him in a lot of different places, but they got it in Midland, Texas. So Maximum John could hear that case. Jimmy's grief stricken during this time. And his only relief from that grief was the action around the tables in Las Vegas. He was a, a degenerate sick gambler, as we call him. I mean, this guy just lived to gamble gamble to live you know like motorcyclists you know i ride to live i live to ride he, he loved his gambling uh, he still doesn't believe that the men who confessed to robbing and murdering his brother lee were really the guys that did it or they were like stooges for the government he thinks there's a government cover-up in it gets arraigned in judge wood's court u.s attorney takes james kerr away from this prosecution the new assistant u.s attorney reindicts jimmy Shagra to get him down in el paso they add a second continuing criminal enterprise charge, and they designate him as a kingpin of this continuing criminal enterprise. These are all new laws that the uh, U.S. attorney's offices are just starting to play with, kind of based on the early cocaine days and, and the, really the drug drug wars of the late 60s and early 70s after the government declared war on the drug business and the war on drugs. These charges can result in a life sentence. He's out on bond when Benny Binion hosts a months-long poker game between Nick the Greek and Johnny Moss, which will eventually morph into the World Series of Poker. Las Vegas is hopping. Binion's Horseshoe is the only casino left that will take Chagra's crazy, crazy giant plays. He would make some crazy plays. He might he'd arrive and put a hundred thousand on a blackjack table, and, and you know, on red or black, or on a number even, or he might go to the you know blackjack table and say take all limits and on one hand the cards of blackjack he might put a hundred thousand dollars down binion would later claim that right after the court released jimmy on bond for this last charge the horseshoe lost two million dollars to jimmy chagra i don't believe that <laughs> do you believe that i don't believe that at all but he played as if there were no tomorrow Jimmy had noticed all the recent publicity that Oscar Goodman had gotten, so he hired him for his El Paso case, and he'll continue to use him uh, from then on. Jimmy's brother, Joe Chagra, joined Oscar Goodman on the defense team, and, and I know that I'd read that he really wanted his brother Lee, thought his brother Lee could just was the one that was always going to keep him out of jail. Joe Chagra filed a motion for Judge Wood to recuse himself from that case because of a lot of public remarks Judge Wood had made. But Judge Wood was, he was always making derogatory remarks of, and really remarks that no judge should ever make and, and uh, where the newspapers could get them and, and print them. Seems in this case, he had called the case the Columbian case and he had leaked some derogatory information out to the media. 
They even said a year before, Judge Wood remarked to, directly to Lee Chagra in an open court, I imagine everybody in this area knows that you are the subject of a grand jury investigation in Tennessee. You know, that's really poor ethics for a judge to say something like that in open court. Oscar Goodman filed for a change of venue and other motions to try to get him out from Judge Wood's court. Didn't go anywhere. Uh, Gary Cartwright in his book, Dirty Dealing Rights, Chagra met a woman he knew as Joanne Starr in the horseshoe, Benny Binion's horseshoe, and she introduced him to a sandy-haired man that he didn't really know, supposedly. Stated this was her new husband, Charles Harrelson. Again, they talk a little bit about the murder of Jimmy's brother, Lee, and Harrelson asked Jimmy, he said, well, what are you going to do about it? Cartwright will write that Harrelson and his wife followed Jimmy around a craps table and, and other places in the casino. And another witness will claim that he saw Jimmy give Harrelson some dice and ask him to throw them. And he lost 50000 on that roll, but he ended up winning 350 that day. You know, these big time gamblers, you know, they can lose 500 one day and win back 600 the next day. It, it just means the money means nothing to them. Other witnesses reported that Chagra and Harrelson were seen talking again several times over the next two or three days. Jimmy supposedly asked him if he could have a television if he ends up in Leavenworth because Harrelson had been in and out of all the penitentiaries. Uh, Harrelson laughs and said, no, you can't, you can't buy your own TV. And Jimmy says, well, what if I buy everyone in the prison a TV? Jimmy started inquiring around among his friends in the you know, kind of criminal underworld Asking about this Charles Harrelson and what kind of man was he? Was he okay? You know, was he an informant? You know, what kind? what's the deal? I think we know what this means. He's like, you know, can I use this guy for something? And Harrelson, you know, it's going to come out, as we know, that he's got a business card he hands around that says <laughs> he's a hit man, too. So and later, Harrelson will learn that he and his wife, Joanne, and another guy, were kind of in Vegas intentionally to meet Jimmy, get him in a card game with some rigged cards to cheat him. They weren't the only ones that were cheating Jimmy Chagra in Las Vegas. They kind of looked at him by this time as kind of a chump. He was such a crazy gambler. There was a group of guys, gamblers, regular, sharpie, you know, hustler gamblers out in Las Vegas that got him in a golf game and, and put big money on it. They were cheating him because they had it all rigged. They had people, they had other guys in uniforms like they were uh, groundskeepers at this particular golf club. They had uniforms in this golf club and they were hidden with walkie-talkies. So they would walkie-talkie each other and say, you know, when Jimmy hit a ball and when one of the other gamblers hit a ball, why mysteriously, if it was a blind, what we call a blind shot, Jimmy's ball would end up behind a tree and the other guy's ball would end up, you know, feet from the pin for a little tap-in putt. Took him for over a half a million on this one golf game. I, I, you know, I think everybody knew Jimmy Shogger was going down. He just, you know, he was such a crazy gambler. He was like a chump. And I know, talked to a, a Leavenworth prison guard who remembered when he was up there. He said he just always wanted people to like him. He never wanted anybody to not like him. So I think, you know, all those vulnerabilities – you know, they plucked him. There's these cases, these scammers plucked his feathers. Now, it's May 5th, 1979. This is the date you need to remember. May 5th, 1979. This is three months after Jimmy is charged for as a kingpin, and he's in Judge Wood's court. It's about a year after the attack on James Kerr and the murder of Jimmy Shogger's brother, Lee. 
Judge John Wood, Maximum John, walks out of his El Paso condo and he finds a flat tire on his wife's station wagon. He's got two cars. He walks back to his other car parked in front of his condo. It won't start. He gets back out of it, getting his briefcase back out or something. And all of a sudden, some shots ring out or a shot ring out. He just crumpled. Killed him instantly. We'll find out later. Cops figured that this was pretty well planned because somebody flattened that station wagon's tire intentionally. And I don't know if they really got around to exactly why the other car wouldn't start, but it certainly was well planned to set him up in that parking lot at that time. Directly across the driveway from the Woods townhouse, there's a guy sitting there who, who knew Judge Wood, and he was just looking out his breakfast room window as he saw Maximum John walking over to his sedan parked right in front of the townhouse. He slipped behind the wheel and tried to start the sedan and nothing happened. Motor is dead, is what the man, the, the witness reported. He got back out. Another neighbor will report that he saw Wood get back out, lean across the front seat to get his briefcase. Then he heard a noise. He said, it sounded like a backfire, a loud backfire. Another witness gave testimony and said he remembered he saw Judge Wood step backward. I didn't know that he was shot. There was no blood or anything. He just sort of twisted around and fell flat on his back. He knew something was wrong. One of the neighbors, that neighbor there, telephoned the police immediately and ran downstairs and across the driveway to where he lay. And, and he said, you know, he looked around. He said there was no one in the area at all. Nothing was moving at all. Judge Wood's eyes were still open, but he didn't speak or move. He didn't see blood. But as it turned out, when the autopsy is done, he was killed instantly by a high-velocity, small-caliber, like a .223 caliber bullet fired from a distance. Killer just disappeared, vanished into the morning traffic, everybody going to work. Been a clean, perfect shot. The neighbor that saw him go down, he said he saw him quiver for just a fraction of a second and just dropped. So the case against Jimmy Chagra is grinding on with jury selection, preliminary motions, and, you know, now the judge is gone, have a little delay in it. The, uh, the attorney general will appoint William Sessions, who was already a judge somewhere else, to take over for Judge Woods. Now, William Sessions will go on to be the director of the FBI several years later. Judge Sessions takes over the Chagra drug case. He's ordered that no attorney in front of the jury will make any reference to what happened to Judge Woods or the murder or anything about it. Of course, even with that, this is El Paso jury, and El Paso is not that big, and the jury oh, the jury would see it in the press. There's, I don't know if there's any way you could not see it that the judge was killed. But you had to deal with it during the jury selection, and, you know, you ask these different questions and try to get people, well, can you, you know, render opinion? What if, what if the defendant... You think the defendant could be a suspect in that? You know, just ask a lot of different questions uh, about that. Jimmy Jagger has got his new lawyer, Oscar Goodman, and his defense was Jimmy Jagger was just a professional gambler who might have brushed up or known many of the characters that are testifying against him and trying to say he's this kingpin drug smur smuggler, but he's not really. They're just setting him up. He's out on a $400,000 bond, which is kind of interesting. I mean, this guy just had, he had money and cars. He just spent everything he could get all the time on something. He gave the bondsman over a million dollars in diamonds as collateral to post his bond. Of course, he tried to bribe one of the witnesses. You know that was coming. Well, in the end, the jury found him guilty on all counts. But before sentencing actually went down, he disappeared. He tried to go on the lam, but didn't do a very good job of it. 
DEA agents, uh, they had some informants or something. They found him pretty quickly and brought him back. And Judge Sessions gave him 30 years. Well, I mean, 30 years, he's 47 years old. That's, uh, I mean, you can, you can do it, but that's a long time out of this middle part of your life. The investigation of Judge Maximum John Wood's murder really takes off while Jimmy Chagra is inside the walls of Leavenworth. He went right to Leavenworth from El Paso. Charles Harrelson is a nutcase, and he's going around telling people he shot Judge Maximum John Wood. A mutual friend of Harrelson's and Jimmy's and his lawyer brother, Joe Chagra, set up a meeting between Joe and Charles Harrelson, for some reason, and Joe kind of liked him. Harrelson had a ton of cocaine, and Jim, Joe Chagra was a total cocaine addict by this time, practicing some law and, and, of course, working on his brother's case and his brother's appeal by now. They hang out. They snort cocaine together. Joe would later say that it seemed like Harrelson had an endless supply of cocaine. Was he like that? Joe told him, said, you know, the feds are looking at my brother for Judge Wood's hit. Gary Cartwright, again in Dirty Dealing, claimed that Harrelson told Joe that he was a suspect himself and he needed a fade to eat. Harrelson had several cocaine and weapons charges, and he hired Joe Shogger for those. The main thing they did was snort cocaine together. He even offered to take Wood's murder. said, I'll take the load for Judge Wood's murder if it'll save your brother. And it's some of that, you know, drug, alcohol, boasting and posturing and everything, I'm sure. Mr. Cartwright claimed that Charles Harrelson was spinning out of control and was becoming more and more paranoid at the time, which, which you'll see in a minute. Whenever there's a huge case like this, it generates so much heat, the headlines, the tipsters, the crazies, and, and all the goofy people come out of the woodwork. And the bad tips just roll in. Scammers are trying to get a reward because there was a huge reward, but just from a citizens association alone in El Paso, they had $125,000 up. And the FBI claimed that they would be good for up to another $100,000. So you're looking at a two, dollars $300,000 reward. Well, the FBI agent in charge was a crackerjack investigator named Jack Lawn. He was the SAC or the special agent in charge of the El Paso office at the time. So all, all those things, all those stories, all those tips coming in, there were so many. I found so many of them. I, I can't even repeat them all on this podcast. One of the best ones, I think, and, and one of the U.S. attorneys that was assigned to the case really kind of bought into this guy for a while. He's a guy named Robert Rios. One thing he told him was that he once saw a group of Texas gamblers and other professional criminals staying a few days at a resort in a small bay right around Judge Wood's resort home down along the, uh, down by Galveston or Corpus Christi, somewhere down along the Texas coast. They looked into it and it didn't really check out other than they found that there had been some people down there and they had a big game in a, in a house in a resort home down there. Jack Lawn never really liked this guy's stories because most of them were too far fetched, but he knew everybody in the subculture down there. And, and he dropped Charles Harrelson's name as part of this. But I have a suspicion that Charles Harrelson's name was on the lips of every snitch in the Texas gambling and drug dealing underworld. And Jack Lawn took a look at Charles Harrelson and his history, and he kind of liked him more he looked at him. During this time, after the assassination, Harrelson went on a drug-crazed crime spree, and he ended up with several Texas state charges pending for cocaine and guns and all, I don't know a bunch of stuff 
I mean, where he was going to have to do some serious time. Plus, he was a criminal by now. Even if they got him on one good felony, they were going to drop the hammer on him. By early September, Harrelson is, you know, he is going nuts. He's been hallucinating that DE agents were watching him and following him everywhere. And, and this kind of culminates. This tells you, this is like direct facts here. This will tell you just how paranoid and nuts he was getting. He was driving on I-10 in West Texas, driving a Corvette, belonged to his girlfriend, who was like the daughter of some big-time manufacturer. He was shooting cocaine. He'd stopped at a gas station, and the guy said, yeah, he said, this guy was just in here. He had a gun laying on the seat, and he was shooting cocaine while he was there, and he was cranking music really loud. So he's out there on I-10. He hears something, a, a, a loose muffler, as it turned out. He hears a noise. So he got out, looked around, looked underneath it, and saw this muffler was loose. And so he wanted, he tried to just like shoot it where it was hanging on, where it was coming loose, shoot it with this 44 mag pistol he had and knock it clear off because he didn't have any tools. And he shot out his rear tire. Well, passing motorists called the cops because they saw a man standing by the highway with a gun. Highway patrol gets there and they end up, he puts a gun to his head and starts threatening to kill himself. And yelling all kinds of crazy things. He, he confessed to the murder of Judge John Wood, but he also confessed to killing John Kennedy during this time, which will come back into the picture here. Or, sorry, you, as you know from the last one. Finally, you know, six hour standoff, they get him to give up the gun and take him to jail. And during this time in jail, he has an attorney, gets an attorney representing him, and he tries to make a deal and, and cop a plea on the Judge Wood thing. He doesn't want to go to Texas State Penitentiary, and he figures that's pretty much life he's going to get in Texas by now because they found a bunch more guns and cocaine in this car. And his attorney calls an assistant U.S. attorney and says, you know, he'll confess to the murder if he can serve life in prison in Leavenworth. Avoid the death penalty, too. If he, gets, if he really gets a case on him, he can end up the death penalty easily. You know, they they like, you know, this is just another dude here. You know, give me give me something, dude. And when somebody just calls you up and confesses, now you give me some details. He realized they weren't taken seriously, so he called them back. Guys got on the jail phone and got hold of somebody at the U.S. Attorney's Office under in El Paso, and he told them something that they had held back from the media. He said the judge's station wagon had a flat tire, didn't it? Well, that got their attention. Harrelson's lawyer is working to make sure he gets indicted by the feds and not the state. Well, back up behind the walls at Leavenworth, Jimmy Chagra is playing high-stakes gin with another inmate. This guy just won't quit. And they said at one time he had to get his wife, Liz Chagra, who always was running errands for him, to take $43,500 to a relative of this inmate that he had lost that much money to him and pay off his gambling debt. During this time, the FBI had got this. He's a shot caller. You know what a shot caller is in, in a penitentiary. He, he's like, they'd say he was one of the baddest of the bad dudes in the Southwest. He was part of the New, New Mexico State Prison riot where they tortured a bunch of, of uh, guards and killed them and, and uh, killed all. They got the informant list and killed off all the informants. And, and this guy, Jerry Ray James, was one of the leaders of that. That's how he ends up in Leavenworth. But he immediately starts getting close to Jimmy Chagra. And he's the kind of a guy, the feds, I guess, had used him. He's the kind of guy that can get in there and they, they totally trust him and, and start getting criminal 
conversation out of you. The first thing he did to warm his way in with Jimmy Chagra, he really supported and, and boosted Chagra's dreams of getting out early as a way to earn his trust. And he also got Jimmy on the subject of Charles Harrelson and the judge's murder. And, and Jimmy starts bragging about his part in the murder. Daughter's talking about Charles Harrelson, and I mean, it's looking good. Jimmy, Joe, Shog, Joe Shogger is visiting Jimmy a lot up there, and his wife Liz is too. And they also, you know, they, they didn't have a wire on this James guy because they were all inside the penitentiary, but they had the visiting room wired for sound. Matter of fact, a local FBI supervisor, uh, Gary Hartman, was, was the guy who was uh, in charge of that. Those tapes will reveal Jimmy is still setting up dope deals through his brother Joe. And they discussed Harrelson every now and then because they knew the feds were looking at him as well as Jimmy. Jimmy told Joe they ought to have him killed. He's asking Joe, he said, well, now, where is he? And Joe says, well, I, I heard he was out to Harris County, which I think maybe is Houston, Harris County Jail. And he's in solitary confinement down there. And, and Jimmy's indicating, you know, could we get somebody down there to get him killed? They also discussed some of Jimmy's plans and and. Jerry Ray James was part of this too. Gonna escape by a helicopter landing in the yard at the prison, take him to a light plane, which would take him to Mexico. He had contacts in Mexico and he knew about this getting across the border. And his end game was to re relocate his dope business to the Southeast Asia area and resume his kingpin status. He was like, Yeah, you know, we'll just do this. One of the damning conversations they had was Joe saying to him, talking about the judge's murder, I thought you'd get somebody from the mafia to do it. Jimmy replied, he said, well, I thought about doing that, but in the end, what difference does it make? He's also talking to Jerry Ray James, who's reporting that he wants a couple other people killed because they're pay failing to pay money that they owe him. You know, hey, he's in prison for a long time. I don't have to pay you, dude, which is pretty typical in that business. That's one thing about being in the mob. You're like part of this group that will take care of stuff like that for you on the outside. You know, by the end of this investigation, the FBI will have over a thousand hours of tape conversations. It's just, it's crazy. Bureau, they never let an opportunity go to waste. They'll find one conversation between Joe and his brother Jimmy, where Jimmy is obviously trying to implicate Joe into the planning and the knowledge of the murder before it was happening, into the planning of it, which would, you know, put him in for another, for a murder charge, a conspiracy murder charge. Joe, as far as we can tell, was just on the outside of all that and now comes in afterwards, supporting Jimmy afterwards. And they took a, they took a copy of that tape to Joe and tried to turn him, but he, he would not turn on his brother. The FBI gets a tip on the gun. An informant told them that Charles Harrelson had bought a 240 caliber Weatherby Mark V about two weeks before the murder. The Bureau finds 250 gun dealers in the Southwest that has sold this rifle during this time, or could sell this rifle even. He even had the rifle. They finally found a Dallas sporting goods store that has sold one 12 days before the murder, and they sold it to someone named Faye L. King at a non-existent address. It looks pretty good. Then they look at that name. Faye L. King. Write it out, guys. Faking. They believe this was probably Chuck Harrelson's wife, Joanne Harrelson. So they get the documents and they get them, fingerprint them, and it's her prints. And they do a handwriting analysis because she had to sign something and shows that in the examiner's, the handwriting examiner's opinion, she's the one that signed for that gun. 
And then they find the stock of a gun just like that in a creek somewhere down there in southwest Texas, like it gets separated from the, the rest of it, but obviously taking it apart and throwing it all away. So they were able to find the gun, but they did link the purchase of that type of a weapon to Chuck Harrelson. From all these tapes, the government will indict Jimmy Chagra's wife, Liz Chagra, his brother, Joe Chagra, uh, Charles Harrelson's wife, Joanne, and of course, Charles Harrelson, Harrelson and Jimmy Chagra and for a variety of charges, but only Charles and Jimmy for the actual murder and the others for aiding and embedding and covering up evidence. Well, just before the they went to trial, Joe will cop a plea for 10 years and testify against Harrelson. He won't testify against um, Jimmy, but he will testify against Harrelson. He knew enough to, to sink him, I think, or at least help sink him. And Jimmy's wife, Liz, and Harrelson's wife, Joanne, were both convicted of this, you know, participating in this. And Jimmy's wife was for participating in the conspiracy, and she got 30 years. I never could figure out Harrelson's wife, whatever happened to her, how much time she got. But uh, his wife got 30 years. Jimmy gets his trial separated because of this deal between him and with Joe Coppin and not testifying against him. Then they just put everything on to Harrelson and then go try Jimmy separately, which was the best thing that ever happened to Jimmy, I would say. Now, Harrelson, Charles Harrelson's already got some like 30 years from Texas state convictions. And now he's got life in federal penitentiary, which is what, you know, kind of what he wanted, life in federal prison. He, he's one of these guys that get along just as well in prison as out, would probably be healthier, uh, get along better inside the joint. Because when you take the rules off of Charles Harrelson, he just, <laughs> he goes nuts. Joe refuses to testify against his brother. Oscar Goodman is Jimmy's lawyer. Judge Sessions got to change the venue to Florida. Several months later, this Florida jury will acquit Jimmy Shogger. Everybody else is convicted except Jimmy Shogger. It's crazy. Uh, Oscar Goodman, it was his finest hour. I'll tell you that. You know, he had guy got all kinds of business after that. that. That word started getting around in that upper echelon criminal world, especially in out west and southwest uh, Las Vegas. But he still had to go back and serve out 30 years from the last drug conviction. Uh, that, and that's what kind of started this whole thing. In the actually, you know, he was so worried about going in front of Judge Woods that, you know, he had him killed. And what good did he do him? His wife, Liz, I think I said before, she got 30 years for she put her in the conspiracy and she died in custody of cancer in 1997. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what happened to Joanne Harrelson. Jimmy will serve many years in a federal prison and get released on parole in 2003. It was reported by the El Paso Times that he when he got out, he was in the federal witness protection program. I don't know exactly. Oh, he got out in 2000. He got out in 2003 and he'll die in 2008. And he was living under a fake name of James Madrid at a trailer camp in Mesa, Arizona, when he died. Thus ends the saga of Jamil James Jimmy Chagra and the murder of Maximum John Woods, the largest investigation the FBI undertook after the JFK investigation. Well, don't forget, guys, I like to ride motorcycles, so look out for motorcycles when you're out there in your car and your pickups. If you've got a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. Uh, if you've got a problem with drugs or alcohol, our good friend, Anthony Ruggiano, works in a treatment center down in Florida. And go to his website, reformgangsters.com, or go to YouTube and just 
search for Anthony Ruggiano and you'll find his hotline. So maybe you can go into drug treatment, alcohol treatment, and you can have Anthony Ruggiano as your counselor. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot, guys.